Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm today joined by Dominic Portman. Now Dominic is the founder and managing director of two Worcester-based businesses. Fancy Dress Worldwide is one of them and DAPV is the other, the latter being an award-winning and multi-channel e-commerce business. Uh, Dominic, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hi Scott. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, um, Dominic, Good and effective leadership, which is really what this podcast is all about, has never been under the microscope more than it is at the moment, is it, with the whole COVID-19 outbreak and businesses trying to steer their way through that. Um, For you, of course, managing two businesses, how has it been over the last few weeks? Um, It has been extremely challenging, yeah. We, the APV is uh, the sort of umbrella company in fact, just worldwide is the retail brand which we sell products through online. Um, this all came in the midst. We're launching a second brand, Games Galore, as well at the same time. So uh, this came, the COVID outbreak came at a time when we were just launching that brand, which we've had to speed up. We've seen, uh, for us, the, the arts and hospitality um, industries have pretty much shut up shop completely. Uh, so for us, the need for fancy dress and party wears has uh, taken a tumble. But we're, we're working hard now to try to launch more and more products uh, lines under Games Galore, our second brand, um, to really sort of um, push forward there. We've, um, I think the, the one thing that I've been impressed with, the government's response has been really good. Um, and for businesses who have had the, um, the restrictions put in place on them and also a lot of sales because of the COVID, I think there are a lot of things out there now for businesses and uh, the government, the, the way the government put that those in place very quickly, has uh, been brilliant and, and really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there have been um, a lot of measures uh, put in place. What is uh, quite interesting as well with the government's approach is um, there has been criticism from some quarters about sort of how uh, the amount of time I should say that it took to implement stricter sort of social distancing measures, as it were. And um, we saw, for example, the likes of Xi Jinping in China and maybe Giuseppe Conte in Italy as well, ordering lockdowns very, very quickly there. Um, and then over here in the UK, Boris Johnson did take a much less hands-on approach initially, where we had money there, we had procedures in place, but we did sort of wait to see what happens before taking more stringent action. Um, taking that away from times of crisis and away from politics now, Dom, um, which approach would you generally take when dealing with difficulties as a leader? Would you prefer to dive straight in, get on top of the situation, or would you tend to just sit back, let things play out a bit, and see how matters develop before then taking action? Good question. Uh, I think that when it comes to making decisions, the way I've always approached things um, is to make sure I have a very detailed understanding of exactly what the problem is. But I think in business, you, you have to tie that together with the speed at which you have to move. Um, and I know, for instance, I've read a lot about the, the psychology behind Amazon and the culture. And uh, there was one article which really stood out to me uh, a couple of months ago I read, and it was about you should, you should know 70% of the information about a certain situation and be able to make a, a decision on that. Um, because speed is very important in business. So I think it ties in again now to 
we know we can see the sales online for poison games going up right now. So we need we know we've got enough evidence that we need to push on for that. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's really important you get a grasp of exactly what's going on and the level of detail required. A lot of that's about communicating as well. I try to always, um, if there's a certain thing which is brought to my attention, I try to go into the department who's dealing with that and, and get their opinion and their take and the level of detail um, to understand why they're recommending what they, they would be recommending. Uh, I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And um, yourself, um, from drawing from your own experience, uh, Dom, um, would you have any advice to give to somebody who's perhaps about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business? Um, I suppose the the main thing is to ensure you absorb as much information from as many people um, as, as physically possible. Learn as much as you can. Um, and, and again, you know, when it comes to, uh, I spend a lot of time going into the different departments of the business, spending, you know, a, a couple of hours in a meeting discussing a particular issue, then going away, and then we'll have a follow-up meeting to actually discuss what's going to be done about certain things. I think it's, uh, you've got to let people be experts in a certain position and uh, kind of streamline that information so that you know the most important bit, but understand that it is, it's probably most important, in my opinion, it's most important to let them educate you before you sort of have to make that decision um, to, to absorb as much information. I think for people, if they were going into their first role, perhaps that would ease them into that role and make the transition uh, in terms of staff, get, let them get to know staff more and know that they're respected. Yeah. Absolutely. Because... A lot of people may see leadership as something that some individuals may be born with, just born with in terms sort of qualities um, of being um, a leader, as it were. But it is also a learning process, isn't it? Somebody going into a leadership role, transitioning into that role, is not going to be the finished article, are they? There's always something to improve on. Absolutely. And um, during from my experience, I've had to step back, but I still have to step back you know, every single day and analyse what I'm doing because uh, when I started business, I was 26. Um, I'm 30 now, so by no means do I have the experience maybe necessary to uh, do the things which I was doing on a day-to-day basis and uh, manage teams, etc., etc. So I've had to learn on the job whilst I'm doing things and always sort of ask those questions of myself. Um, and I think that's really important is, is the ability to stand back and understand that it's okay you know, you, you, you spot something in yourself or something you've done to think, you know, maybe that's not the best way to approach that and then go back and, and, and change. Um, yeah, I'd say that's been one of the one of the key things for the last four years that I've learned. Yes, and um, you did mention culture earlier as well there, Don, because that is something I do want to uh, touch on. Um, it is very much the responsibility of a leader, especially in, well, well, in any environment, really, a business environment, a sporting environment, to create a culture of positivity, which can really allow those around them to flourish and really get the best out of them, because it is a team effort more than anything else as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think um, what the way, the way I've always thought to approach that is to uh, give people opportunity where I can and um, give people ownership of a certain part of the business or a certain thing within the business so that they uh, are able to flourish um, but also there is a balance there of course with understanding there's going to be an overarching management to that 
Um, but yeah, I think people get more engaged. I found people get more engaged when they feel a part of something and they feel a part of the business. Um, and I've always tried to keep that with um, all of my staff and give them as much responsibility as I can. Yes, absolutely. Because I think um, that hands-on experience and giving people responsibility does help uh, get the best out of them and really nurture them. Um, that's um, absolutely right. Um, with that in mind, um, Dom, um, with your leadership style, um, as it were, is there anybody who has maybe had an influence that sort of comes to mind um, on the leadership style that you've taken throughout your career? Um, yeah, I think oh, I did psychology at uni, so. Um, I was always really interested in the psychology of uh, motivation, etc. And I, I used to be involved with, with uh, sports, especially football. So again, um, sort of how managers deal with you and sort of motivate you—that was always in the back of my mind. I think in terms of business now, when I was in Nottingham Trent University, there was um, the Hive, which is an entrepreneurship hub, and uh, within there, there are a few really good uh, people, Phil Clark's one of them to uh, sort of brought people in if you had a business idea you could come and speak about it and he was very positive and the Hive was very we were always very positive about what you could do how you could set up a business and um, kind of there, there are two, two types I guess of business people who see it as a uh, career and people who see it as um, you know not, not necessarily a safe career which of course it isn't but I think if you're going to start up a business, you have to have people around you who are positive and willing to, I guess, let you understand that you can go for something like starting a business and allow it to fail slightly here and there as long as you consistently adapt it and learn from uh, things that go on. So I think that played a key role. Um, and also I have now uh, mentors who have sort of been there, seen it and done it. Um, some who are shareholders, some who are external advisors. And I think taking from their experience and tying that in with that kind of positive mentality um, has been, has been for me, really powerful. Yes, absolutely. Because um, those, um, like I say, innate qualities that people are born with in order to um, essentially become an effective leader, um, they are things that you do have to uh, develop because it is important to remember that these individuals aren't ready moulded, as it were. Absolutely right. Um, Before we do uh, wrap things up, um, Dom, um, what I would like to get an idea of is um, what you imagine the next 12 months will hold beyond the COVID-19 crisis for yourself, for Fancy Dress for Worldwide, for DAPV and what you hope to achieve in that time as well. Yeah, so <clears throat> for DAPV, the way um, we approach becoming a retailer, Fancy Dress is our first foray into the market, but when, when I uh, started business, one of the things that's becoming clear is that multi-channel online retail was, was really coming to fore and people were trying to adapt legacy systems within their business to um, to enable multi-channel sales. We've approached it from a perspective of building software and a technology platform first and foremost. So we've got a platform called Iger, which is used in-house and it manages everything from our relationship with suppliers to how we fulfill orders and how we sell products online. Um, with the goal in mind that we can sell multiple product categories online um, and cater for multiple audiences. I think so fans address worldwide, one of the key things we're, we're just about, we're looking into partnering with um, a, a buy now, pay later um, program and 
sort of giving customers flexibility really whilst there's uncertainty. It's a, it's a Saturday Halloween this year, so that's always a big, um, a big um, uplifting sales for us and a, a big uplifting people going out. So hopefully this will all be blown over by then. Um, and off the back of that, we've gained some more second product category. We, we can use our software platform internally to, to push the brand forward. And hopefully the, the toys and games products we're bringing to market will help people who are stuck at home, maybe with children, um, and then going on from that, it, it will all be set up for Christmas, which hopefully, again, uh, things will be blown over and uh, it'll be a real uplift for us. So there's plenty of growth on the horizon for us. Um, we've just got to navigate this crisis and uh, push forward into, into more product categories and, and, and becoming more of a generic online retailer and multi uh, in multiple industries. Yes, absolutely. And let's hope we start seeing that upward curve very much sooner rather than later. Um, I actually mm. think um, in a few months' time, uh, Dom, it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme to look at this retrospectively and maybe look at how um, all of this has panned out. Uh, but for now, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. And um, thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, speak with myself and uh, do that for the benefit of the listeners. No, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, really good. And yeah, I'll be wanting to come back on as well. So thank you. No problem. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I say. Uh, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. 
and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game and I was also I think mature enough to understand um that this was a great opportunity for me but not to get carried away with it which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players without a doubt and I think in those early years of your career it's so important I think you'd agree especially when you're learning from other more experienced people this can be true of any field whether it's sports or politics or business um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that 
just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, Absolutely. and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but hmm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans, I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be. The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.